You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Jenny Sensiper, an investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Debbie has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Journalism, and the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, to name a few. She's held reporting positions at the Miami Herald and the Charlotte Observer. She grew up in Philadelphia and graduated from the University of Florida. She lives in Washington, D.C. Also here is Jim Ogobafel. He was named by Politico as one of the top 50 visionaries of 2015. He's held a variety of corporate jobs in training and technology, and he is the first recipient of the Ohio Democratic Party's Ogerbefell Arthur Progressive Hero Award. He lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Debbie and Jim. Thank you. Thank you. So the Charlotte Observer had this to say about the book. It said that love wins. The lovers and lawyers who fought the landmark case for marriage equality is written with a novelist's attention to scene description and a character revealing action. And it's an exemplary account that anyone, no matter his or her ideological orientation, might read with both pleasure and insight. And of course, I completely agree. But I also feel like Love Wins is predominantly a love story. So Jim, please tell tell us about that. Tell us about John Arthur and your marriage and the beginning of this story. Absolutely. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. This is a love story, not just about me and John, but many of the other plaintiffs who are in this story, in this book. And for me and John, it started out of love and the desire to live up to our promises to love, honor, and protect one another. John was this wonderful, charming, witty, generous man. I was lucky to fall in love with him, and he fell in love with me. And because of ALS, and he was dying day by day, when the Windsor decision came out in, on June 26, 2013, which struck down part of the Defense of Marriage Act, we decided to marry after more than 20 years together because we could finally have our federal government say, you exist, you matter. And that was all we wanted to do. We simply wanted our government to say, we counted. And we wanted to live our live out our remaining days, or John's remaining days, as husband and husband. And by virtue of friends running into a friend of theirs who's a civil rights attorney, we had a conversation with him, and our story, our life at that moment, took a turn we could have never imagined. But it was all because of love. It was all out of wanting to live up to our promises to one another. So, Debbie, sort of set the scene. So... They fell in love in Cincinnati. Uh, this, it, the whole story starts around 2013. But, you know, Cincinnati at that time, tell us a little bit about the, the social situation there. And, and I don't, I'm also curious, when you tell us about what's happening in Cincinnati, if you can sort of compare it to what was happening in the rest of the country. Was it distinctly worse? Was it pretty much what was happening everywhere? Or what, what was it really like those Cincinnati days? Cincinnati is a really vibrant Midwest city, and it, it was a first in so many ways. I mean, first Jewish hospital and first fire department and other things, but it was considered at the time that John and Jim fell in love 
to be the most anti-gay city in America. And it was largely um, considered anti-gay because there were some very, very conservative groups that were based in Cincinnati, started out kind of as anti-pornography crusaders, and that turned into anti-gay kind of crusaders. And so in the early part of this book, we describe what Cincinnati was like when John and Jim fell in love, and it was um, they had a law in, in the city's charter that prevented any laws that would protect the gay community yeah. from discrimination. One of the only laws of its kind like that on the books. And so in terms of the rest of the country, it was definitely, I think, more conservative. Looking back, it must have been such a hardship to sort of take this on. But at that moment, you saw an opportunity to basically do the right thing and to fight for your individual marriage and your partner and then put that in the context of a, of a bigger movement. Is that correct? That is correct. And when we made this decision to file suit, we did it from a very personal point of view. It was about the two of us. And I can honestly say for me, I couldn't think outside of the two of us. I couldn't think of the future because if I thought about the future, that meant I was thinking about John's death. Yeah. And so for us, it was a way to fight for each other. And I know for John, it was one thing he felt he could do to live up to his promises to me, but it was also a way for him to say thank you because he felt guilty every moment, every day from the, his diagnosis with ALS, he felt like he had ruined my life because oh. of that. And this was one way he could say, thank you, Jim. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for caring for me. I can't go to court with you. I can't do anything, but I can say, yes, let's do this. And I can give you my blessing to go out there and to use some of our remaining time together to use that to fight for this instead. So it was very important to both of us, and it was a very personal decision, which quickly bloomed into something so much larger. Right, because the, the initial fight was just to simply have your name added to the death certificate, correct? As, that as is the correct. Re remaining, as the surviving spouse. Correct. Now, the story, the ultimate story of marriage equality is about two Supreme Court rulings, correct? So Debbie, tell us, tell us a little bit about the first one and then how that led, how it's in relationship to the second one. Well, the book is really about the second one, right. Rockefeller v. Hodges, because a lot has been written about the Edie Windsor case. Right. But the Edie Windsor case, as Jim said, struck down the def a portion, a, a huge portion of the Defense of Marriage Act, and that was a, a, a biggest victory in the history of gay rights at, at the time. And um, what it did is it allowed the federal government to extend very important federal benefits to gay couples. Now, I've I've read that there was a concern at a certain stage in this effort that you were you might be going too fast and then if you worked the, quickly and then lost that you could be doing further damage to the cause so so talk a little bit about sort of that side of it because i do remember reading things like that where it was yeah. like oh i don't know you know maybe you should just be happy with what you've already got and are we you know is this going to work well, out long term yeah and the national gay rights advocacy community had a very specific plan for making this happen and they wanted to build public support they wanted to go state by state and when al and other attorneys in in um uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and Michigan started filing these cases, they were concerned yeah. because they knew that they would ultimately end up at the super conservative Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
and they were concerned about a high-profile loss at the time that yep. there was such momentum all over the country. And Al had to, with, and the other attorneys, had to withstand that pressure, a little bit of pressure early on. People said, are you sure you want to do this? Is this the right case? And this was hard for local civil rights attorneys, you know, being called by big-name advocacy sure. groups. And you know what Al said? He said, I've got a client, we've got a problem, and this is what I have to do. Right. And so that's it's, just who he is. Yeah, that's it's interesting. So it brings it back to the individuals involved and the individuals that he was serving. And he was brilliant that way. Al, Al is not just a kind and dynamic man, and he, he really is. He's, he's a brilliant lawyer. Yes. He is a brilliant lawyer. And he, he's an interesting guy because in the book describes him. He's, he's kind of rumpled, and his office looks like it's dusty, and the carpet is green, and, you know, he's never really kind of, he's not like a high-priced lawyer that I meet all the time, at, you know, in Washington, D.C., but he, he just knew that by pointing out person by person, couple yeah. by couple, these very technical problems that people faced, they can't get a death certificate that's accurate. Parents can't get birth certificates for their children. I mean, how is that possible? And Al knew that by pointing out problems like that, it would bring people along. That mm-hmm. it wasn't just this kind of symbolic yep. issue anymore of gay marriage. These were tangible technical problems that for people like me, having kind of watched the gay rights fight from the sidelines, that's what drew me to this story yeah. is how can parents not get birth certificates for their children that list the names of two mothers or two fathers? Right. How is that possible? El never lost sight of the fact that at the center of this case were people. Mm -hmm. And from the moment we met him through the Supreme Court decision and beyond, that has always been El's focus. So let's talk about your your writing this book and how you came to the story and how how a book was born. And I would I want to hear about how you two worked together. So please start with when where was the germ of the idea for this book? Well, um, I had had uh, interest from a literary agent. Uh, I won a, a Pulitzer Prize in 2007 when I was at the Miami Herald. And ever since then, I was told, write a book, write a book, write a book. But I get wrapped up in my job. I'm an investigative reporter, and I go from one big story to another. And I never found something that said, okay, stop the presses. I want to write a book until I saw Jim's, till I heard about Jim's story and John's story. And I read about it in my own newspaper, the Washington Post, and I had heard about it, of course, through other channels, and I knew that I needed to, to, I just wanted to tell this story so, so badly. And I was lucky enough to know Jim through um, family, and I called him out of the blue, and I said, can we talk? Oh, wow, yeah, so it was a cold call. And this was a cold call, and it was, in fact, before the Supreme Court decided the case. and I, in fact, took a leave of absence from my job at the Washington Post even before I knew which way the Supreme Court would go yeah. because I was so moved by this story, like millions of Americans. Yeah. And I was so, and, and of course, the first moment I met Al, I knew he needed to be part of this book. And so it kind of developed from there. And what do you think this story, how can it help educate us around other social justice issues around race equality and income equality. What have you learned from this process that, that you would, would hand off to somebody else in, in a quest like this? I think what it comes down to is telling stories is vitally important. I think about what Harvey Milk said, come out, tell your story. That's how we change hearts and minds. And for me, 
I feel, I'm, I mean, I'm humbled that John's and my story and the stories of my, my fellow plaintiffs, those stories connect to people. People, they resonate. People can relate to them. They can connect to them. And by sharing our stories, by willing, by being willing to, to tell our stories and to be in public and to fight for our families, we changed hearts and minds. And I think in so many things, whether it's because of race or income or gender, we change hearts and minds by telling our stories. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been a great honor to be able to do that and to help, help move us forward. So no matter what it is, tell stories because that's how we break down misconceptions. We take the abstract idea of something or someone to real life understanding. Mm -hmm. And do you think that social media helped a lot with this, or was it? I, I was trying to research sort of that that love wins hashtag, and it seems like it, it came up sort of after the ruling, and that there were a few in one day, and then love wins just sort of shot up. And I think it was because President Obama was one of the I think it was estimated ten million people who used it in uh, in the course of that decision. But what what role do you think social media had with this cause? And, well, I think social media has always been a big part of this of this movement. I mean, there are some. In fact, we profile someone in the book named Fred Sains. Did I pronounce that mm -hmm, right? Fred Sains, with the Human Rights Committee, who um, was partly responsible after the Edie Windsor decision of creating the um, the equal signs. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that, that just have, took yeah, over social media, yeah. and they're very, very sharp minds who have learned to use social media. Well, and I take it even back further. I think about the evolution of support for the LGBTQ community in our country. And I give a lot of credit to Facebook, to social media. Yeah. Because here was this platform, this environment where people could share their stories. They could be who they are and in some ways feel safe because it was a somewhat controlled environment. Mm -hmm. And they could share that with the people that they knew, the people they cared about. So for me, I think that the great swing in attitudes towards LGBTQ rights over the past decade is thanks to social media. Yeah, that's interesting. And certainly the younger generation, you know, looks at it completely that way. And I think it's, I think it's partially because of that, because mm -hmm. they're all equal um, on those platforms and they're all free. Right. And they can connect with other people. They can connect with people they relate to, they understand, people who are part of a community. And that, I really believe, has had such a dramatic impact on attitudes and understanding in our country. Mm -hmm. But I still think it comes back to your earlier question, which is, and there's a line in the book, one of the earliest kind of guidance that Al got was, every good civil rights case starts with a story. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really think that the lawyers in these cases were brilliant in picking picking plaintiffs that we could all relate to. I mean, there are people in the book, detailed in the book, um, couples who live in cul-de-sacs and drive minivans yep. and put their kids in Catholic school and looking for the best preschool for their kids. And they're our friends and our yeah. neighbors and our yeah. family members. That so, was the key message. Absolutely. They're, they're one of us, so why are we fighting this? In every yeah. which way. Yeah. So you took a book leave. And you decided you were going to write this book. How did you all, like, what was the writing process like? So um, I started writing almost immediately after the decision. In fact, I think on decision day, I mean, you know, we knew we wanted to 
hopefully publish this book in time for the one-year anniversary. Jim at that time, as everybody knows, had pretty much become the face of this movement nationally. I mean, he was flying all over the country. He was winning yeah, awards, yeah, yeah. guest speaker, everything. So we really ha- he really had to carve out some time to let me talk to him about this book. And we spent hours on the phone. You know, I, I, was, I just had to basically ask him lots and lots and lots of questions and pull memories from every which way. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? What were you wearing? What was the weather like? What did he say? What did she yeah. say? What did you do? What did he do? And I had to do that for a long, long time with Jim and with other people in the book to, so that we could tell this book much like, like fiction, much like yeah. you're reading a story and not a history book. And so there was a lot of collaboration in terms of lots of phone calls. What do you remember? You know, who should I speak to? And, you know, those kinds of things. All right, so now you've gathered that. And I'm, it's so interesting that you would say, what was the weather like? Because you feel it. You feel you the weather feel in the book as you read it these And these taste stories. it. All the senses. <laughs> check, check, check. You, you did all that. <laughs> Wanted to do that. It, it really, yeah. it's so easy to just fall into this story with the way that you crafted it. So now you've got your details. And now you actually have to sit down. Did, did you write and then share with Jim to look at? Did yeah. Jim also, how did that? I wrote and then shared chapters with Jim. And so we went back and forth once there was once okay. there was words on paper. Okay. But it's interesting you should say that. I'm glad that you felt like you got sucked in. One of my readers all my life has been my mother, who is, of course, an avid reader and book clubs and this and that. And she was reading it, and, of course, she's not really into the, these issues, and she lives in Florida, and she just does her own thing. She said with by Chapter 3, she forgot it was her, her daughter's yeah, she writing. she just wanted to know what she, happens next. She just wanted to know what happens next, and she fell in love with Jim and John, and then I knew we had something here. You that's, know. that's funny. So that's always one of my first questions when I ask authors, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, I'm always curious, who is your first reader? So is your mother your very first reader? Always my mother. Always. And even my grandmother, who's still alive, she's 95 years old and read the book. And now you can imagine that generation. And she said, got a little confused with some of the legal stuff, but loved the love story. Loved it. Just fell in love with it. So I come from a family of readers. So now how has your your life changed. Now now you're sort of, uh, you know, a recognizable white person, you know, in everyday life, and walking down the street in New York City, I would imagine. <laughs> Is that good? Is that bad? How, what's it like? Well, my life has changed completely. It's become something I never dreamt of, never imagined, never thought of, never really wanted. You know, I think about who I was a year, two years, three years ago, Never wanted to be someone that people recognize, someone that people stop on the street. And you're right, that happens all the time. Yeah. Whether I'm in New York, Anywhere, on a street huh? corner, in an airplane, in a restaurant, doesn't matter. People do recognize me and stop me. And I find that I don't mind it because they stop me for very specific reasons. They stop me to shake my hand, to say thank you, to show me photos, to tell me stories. And to talk about what our fight and what this case and what marriage equality means to them or someone they love. Yeah. And so for me, every single time that happens, it's a beautiful interaction. And it reminds me, reinforces that John and I made the right decision to fight for each other, to, to file this suit and say, this isn't right, it isn't fair, this is not what America is about. And I'm reminded of that every single time it happens. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Have I lost my anonymity? 
Absolutely. But I really don't mind. Well, and and I thank you both for writing the book because I think it's going to expose the story to you know, the details of the story to even more people. It's a terrific book. Thank you both so very much, and thank, thank you for you. taking the time to talk to me about yeah, it. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.